Today is the sixth day of our spring seven day session, our 2nd of September 2016. And we're continuing to look at the Metta Sutta. Um, I'm going to try and get through the rest of it today. And just to refresh people's memories, we'll just read the second half and then look at it in more detail. Even as a mother protects with her life her only child, other, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So we left off last time with um, the Buddha's warnings about despising anywhere, anyone. And then right after those lines we get this image of the mother. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. This is a a primal relationship, the one between mother and child. Uh, Much older than humanity even. And an image of mother and child is used for each of the of the four Brahma Viharas. This one of um, a mother protecting her child for the metta, and then for compassion, a mother taking care of a sick child, and then for sympathetic joy, a mother regarding her child going off into the world. And for equanimity, a mother offering, uh, watching or observing the affairs of a grown child. And, and each of these is, is, is very evocative. The, protective, the protectiveness of the mother towards her child. This um, relationship between mother and child is um, now thought by um, some psychologists and researchers 
to be the, the sort of um, the foundation or the, the place from which um, altruism, really love for, for others, comes from. And this goes all the way back to Charles Darwin. Um, reading here from um, Altruism by Mathieu Ricard. The idea traces back to Darwin, for whom love of the other was based on parental, parental and filial affection and linked to the emotion of sympathy. Species of animals that did not concern themselves with the well-being of their offspring would quickly disappear. William McDougall, a social psychologist who was very influential in the early 20th century, outlined a psychological approach based on Darwin's natural selection in which he stressed parental instinct, the emotions of, a tender, of tenderness associated with it and by extension the concern we feel for all vulnerable things who need protection. McDougall developed the idea that parental care which he regarded as the most powerful of all instincts, is the basis for altruism extended to non-related individuals. He goes on to cite several researchers who um, have taken this hypothesis further, and uh, especially the, um, included in this the notion that um, something that can be developed for one evolutionary purpose can then go on to later fulfill a different function. And he says, Thus the tendency to be kind to our children and those close to us would not only have played a major role in the preservation of our species, but could also be at the origin of extended altruism. And then he quotes a researcher, Paul Ekman, Research has shown that when mothers hear their infants cry, there is a biological response, but not in females who have not yet been mothers. Mothers show a larger response to their own infant, infants, but also show response to others as well. Not only that, but when our parents grow old and become helpless, our concern, love and care for them um, increase strongly and they become like our children. Many, many examples also found among um, animals of um, altruism across different species. Um, he, he uh, Mature mentions a, um, a female dog in Buenos Aires that was became famous for having saved an abandoned human baby uh, by placing it. Um, with her puppies, so, um, shades of, of um, Romulus and Remus in and, and Latin uh, Roman mythology. Similarly, in a striking documentary, we see a leopard chase and kill a mother baboon. Before dying, the baboon gives birth. At the sight of the newborn, the stunned leopard hesitates for a second, then changes its attitude. He treats the little baboon gently and, when other predators approach, takes him delicately in his jaws and places him in the safety of a tree branch. The baby baboon, frightened at first, tries to climb higher. 
is caught by the leopard and then, exhausted, lies motionless between the paws of the leopard, which begins to lick and groom him. The two fall asleep, leaning against each other. It's finally the cold of the night that takes the life of the baby baboon. A few years ago there was a, a story when there were um, bushfires in Australia um, of people clearing up after the fires, um, finding a mother bird um, com- completely charred, the wings slightly outspread, and when they lifted this little carcass charred carcass up underneath they found four baby birds still alive we could call this protective in this in this bird the maternal instinct but instincts are played out in individuals and it's it's, it's hard to even comprehend the courage of that bird not to fly away as the flames engulfed her it's really this kind of fierceness of meta that the Buddha is talking about when he says even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child could be great intensity of feeling and action in this. And of course not just mothers. Fathers too. And of course in the sutta it's being it's being presented as um, the way for all of us Mathieu in his in his tome on altruism also um, looks into a lot of research which has been done on children and altruism and how um, a helping attitude kindness Um, can be seen in very, very young children. This is further evidence that that it's something innate in us, something that that, uh, needs to be uncovered by meta-practice, not something that that we somehow manufacture Alan Wallace in his book on the um, Brahmi Viharas it's called The Four Immeasurables he's asked 
um, about how it is that that um, meta practice can lead to shamatha. Um, any of you who know his work know that he, his his thing is shamatha. Shamatha is um, is a particularly um, stable, profound, unshakable samadhi. So somebody asks him, or he poses the question himself, how, how do you achieve shamatha in metta meditation when meta meditation on the, on the face of it is um, a discursive meditation where we're using words and images when we do metta. And he says some, some very incisive things here about how metta meditation unfolds. As we do start off discursively, the, the, the um, classical way to do metta is to start with where it's the easiest to generate loving kindness. So, um, in the traditional order, it's you start with yourself and then you go on to somebody who's a benefactor, who you've, someone to whom you feel really great gratitude and love and then on to um, somebody close to you a family member or a friend and you can you know, do multiple people at each stage but then going to a, a neutral person and finally to difficult people and even enemies so in each case you're bringing to mind somebody imagining what will make them happy and sending them um, good wishes so that's one um, approach but actually in this second part of the Metta Sutta it also is presenting um, another approach which is is just to send out Metta in, in all directions and not to specific individuals but to um, all people who can do this spatially so this is what um, Alan Wallace says about this Meta starts out discursively, but it becomes non-discursive. Bear in mind what the purpose is of the concepts we raise in discursive meditation. We bring thoughts to the mind in the form of words or images. May you be well and happy. It's one of the phrases that people use when doing meta. But loving kindness is not an effulgence that gushes out of the thought itself. Loving kind, if loving kindness doesn't come from the thoughts, then why have the thoughts? The thoughts that we bring in the med- forth in the meditation catalyze something that is much deeper than thought. We know how well thoughts and attitudes, states of mind, can obscure or suppress the loving kindness within and make us emotionally numb, like laying concrete over our innate goodness. But just as thoughts can obscure, so can another thought act as a jackhammer to open up what has been covered with concrete. That is why we use the thoughts. 
They are not designed to create loving kindness, they can't possibly, but they can open up the heart to that which is already present and let it flow forth into consciousness. Another way to think of it is that the thoughts are a template, they are the right shape and we use them to create a space for something else to come up from an entirely different dimension of the human spirit. I was struck on reading this, how well it could also apply to working on a koan. We use words and images in order to go beyond words. to, to um, find an entry point into uh, a vast universe from which we often feel alienated. Discursive meditation, using thoughts words or images is designed to open a door but when the heart opens in loving kindness then the discursive technique may become an impediment when it starts to get in the way you release the technique and rest in non-discursive awareness just abide there quietly there is an art to balancing this but it is the in that stabilizing, non-discursive loving-kindness meditation that the mind really starts to shift its axis and a radical transformation can take place. This is where shamatha becomes melded with loving-kindness and can really go to a great depth. That's when we really break down the barriers in the cultivation of loving-kindness. As you develop a greater momentum in the practice, you will find that those periods of non-discursive meditation last longer and longer. It is one aspect of the practice that will qualitatively shift and you'll have less and less the sense that you're doing a Buddhist practice and more of the feeling that you are simply opening to your own inner goodness. When you have spent some time attending to individuals, focusing on the enemy, breaking down the boundaries that separate your responses to various individuals, then you can place more emphasis on the latter stage of the meditation. Here the mind reaches out to the four quarters in all directions, enveloping all sentient beings. May we all be well and happy without exception. As that thought arises, it catalyzes loving-kindness itself. Now it is no longer a thought of loving-kindness, it is the actual experience of loving-kindness. Once that is present, it is possible to sustain it. And that is what you do, just sustain it. Your, ab your object is all sentient beings, and you are attending to that object in a mode of loving-kindness. It is important to recognize that the object is not the feeling of loving-kindness itself, but the sentient beings to whom your awareness is directed. You sustain that, you rest in it, and then if you find that your attention starts to waver, 
then you bring in a bit of discursive thought, just enough to place the mind and stabilize it once again. So this um, this uh, radiating um, loving kindness in the different directions is actually described right here in the sutta. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness when should sustain this recollection. So right here is this, um, you could say, um, non-discursive meta-practice. The key... The key um, term here is with a boundless heart a boundless heart is um, a heart that can't be measured isn't limited and this this word is repeated later, later on outwards and unbounded in terms of how we radiate this. And we can be sure with these things that are repeated that they're particularly important, like not proud earlier in the sutra. So what the sutra is saying is um, that we come to radiate kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, this is actually the first time the word meta appears in the sutra. Probably the only time. Radiating kindness. The term for entire world is, is sabaloka, meaning um, every creature in every world, anywhere, so the whole cosmos, anywhere where beings are born, we're sending loving kindness there. So the Siddha is talking about the advanced meta practice here. Meta practice in which all the barriers are completely broken down. Here's Ellen Wallace again. The achievement of shamatha in loving kindness takes place simultaneously when the barriers have been broken down. In quotes. The barriers are the divisions between the people I like 
the people towards whom I am neutral and the people I don't like. In other words, the distinctions I make between the people I want to be happy, those I don't care about, and those I would like to see hit by a truck. Shamatha is developed when those barriers have been completely flattened. A test of this is given as a thought experiment in the sutras. I think this comes from Buddha Gosha. Imagine that you are with three people. One of them is your dearest friend. Another is someone you have just met casually. And the third is someone against whom you harbour deep resentment. Then a bandit, a bandit turns up and um, says, I'm going to kill one of you and you've got to choose which one. Obviously, if you choose your enemy, you haven't broken down the barriers. But more interestingly, uh, Buddha Gosha says, if you offer yourself, you still haven't broken down the barriers. That would imply that you care about the others, but the field is not yet level. If all barriers were down, you would give no response because there would be no preference. Your choice is no choice. I'm not going to play this game. When you've reached that point, you will have achieved shamatha in loving kindness. Um, in, in another commentary on this, uh, point out that you'd be, you'd be giving love and compassion um, to the bandit as well as the others. So this unbounded outpouring of love and kindness like um, a little bit like being being a lighthouse it's shining its light in all directions in the formalist instructions around this type of meta practice they talk about the ten directions so the four cardinal points the four points in between and then up and down the zenith and the nadir and again um, as was earlier said in the, in the sutra this is including um, all different realms of existence um, the traditional six so including the heavens and the hells as well as, as humans and animals and so forth we could also include here all classes all races all species spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. When they repeatedly talk about this, this meta being unbounded, it's um, precisely it's being free from hatred and ill will. These are what bind us. 
and no one can remove them for us. The only way that we, we free ourselves from these is by recognizing them as, as the things that chain us and then taking them off, dropping them. And meta practice is, is, is one way to go about it. But just like with Azazen, for it to be effective, you have to follow the instructions. And if, you, if you're doing a practice where you feel it isn't working for you, it can be good sometimes to look and, and just check if you're following the instructions. If you're really giving it your best. Are you listening to what the masters say? Are you um, giving them the benefit of the doubt? And trying it out, really, with all your being. Because that's the only way to find out. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So the, the, the um, spotlight shifts from um, the objects of our measure in all of these, these ten directions to ourselves. Our, um, these are known as um, standing, walking, seated or lying down known as the four comportments and um, it's the way uh, a more concrete way in, in the teachings that um, we talk about at all times in other words, whatever you're doing to be doing your meta practice when you're washing dishes in the kitchen or taking a shower, washing your face, lying down. So it's exactly the same as the instructions for doing the breath or, um, or certainly for koan work. With the breath you just stay present with activities if you're doing something. But the idea is that you're practicing at all times in an, uh, in an uninterrupted stream. And what uninterrupted means is your effort is uninterrupted. course the, the level of concentration varies but working towards a practice that is as uninterrupted as we can make it whether standing or walking seated or lying down free from drowsiness this is maybe not the most felicitous translation of this line you look at the original Pali, um, it's closer to um, the word used as middo. It means without any vestige of laziness. So no, 
no laxity, you could say, completely alert, really staying present. Ideally, that's how, how we practice effectively. One should sustain this recollection. So keep it in mind. Keep, keep up um, the meta in mind all the time. And, and recollection here is, is interesting because it's sati, mindfulness. So in some translations it has mindfulness rather than recollection. But recollection is a closer translation of mindfulness. It's a remembering, calling to mind. One translation has here, one should be resolved on this mindfulness. One of the things that the commentators point out is that this mention here of mindfulness, it, right here near the end of the sutta, establishes a, an important link between metta practice and the other main Theravadan meditation, Vipassana, which is um, mindfulness is the main approach. What um, Meta does is um, uncover this boundlessness, this boundless mind. It's, it purifies the heart. Some commentators describe Meta as being like a kind of, of, of solvent for ill will. This is said to be the sublime abiding. In the original Pali, it's a line has a little bit more to it. It says, "This is called the sublimeing. This is called the sublime abiding here and now. Sublime abiding." Says. Brahma Vihara, um, sublime or Brahma means holy or divine, exalted. And abiding, sometimes translated as abode, means dwelling. It's related to the word for a dwelling place. Um, Theravadan temples are called uh, Viharas. But in the, in the original you have this extra bit, the here and now. So it's like it's saying this exalted abode, this holy place, and there is actually a heaven called the Brahma heaven in, in Buddhist cosmology. 
is right here, now. We had told that story about the blacksmith earlier in Sishreen, and um, at the end, the punchline is that he's been in the kingdom of heaven all along because of his service to others. Or there is Master Hakuin saying, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, this very body, the body of Buddha. Right there, those lines are really the essence of metta. Treating everybody, every body as the body of Buddha our own and others. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one. Now we've gone in this, just the previous line, we've been talking about the most exalted state, really, of conditioned existence. The state of pure, unbounded love. And then we go into into this line. We're not holding to fixed views. There's a little um, progression that seems to be happening here from sublime abiding to non-abiding. The Diamond Sutra says, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Not holding to fixed views. Actually, um, in some translations it says not, not attached to false views. But really um, all views are false because they're limited. They, they always come from a particular point, from a particular standpoint. So ultimately to, to enter into a truly transcendent state we have to drop even our most cherished views. Even the notion that um, beings are deserving of our love. Meta-meditation, even though it, it, it goes to, to this um, discursive, or more non-discursive place in its um, most subtle levels it still has an object which is beings and beings is a concept so it's like the, in this sutta we have, have the, the, the meditator leaping from that divine abode into empty space like like 
leaping from the top of a hundred foot pole into not holding fixed views. The Heart Sutra we chant, holding to nothing whatever but dwelling in Prajna wisdom. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Pure-hearted one, purified through their meta-practice, the truly wise one, with clarity of vision, The clarity of vision uh, comes when we overcome our greed and our hatred and delusion. This is what um, is meant by being freed from all sense desires. It's not that we don't still have senses but that our view of things is no longer being distorted by our clinging to what we like, clinging to the pleasant, rejecting the unpleasant and ignoring the rest. And then on top of that, forging a sense of identity out of our likes and dislikes. Shades of Facebook. I like this, I don't like that. And, and of course, the more we cling to that sense of identity, the more our view of things becomes distorted. So transcendent wisdom comes from entering into no mind, no fixed views. Bodhidharmas, I don't know. What the um, call in Tibetan tradition, primordial consciousness. Great Tibetan teacher Padma Sambhava um, said this astonishing. The ongoing cognizance and luminosity called the mind exists, but does not exist even as a single thing. It is a label, for it is named in unimaginable ways. Some people call it the mind itself. Some non-Buddhists call it the self. Shravakas call it personal identitylessness. Chittamatrans call it the mind. Some people call it the middle way. Some call it the perfection of wisdom. Some give it the name Tathagatagarbha. Some give it the name Mahamudra. Some give it the name ordinary consciousness. Ordinary consciousness. That's what we call it in Zen. Ordinary mind. Some call it the soul Bindu. Some give it the name Dharmadhatu. Some give it the name substrate.
has all these names, we can read texts about it, but in the end it doesn't mean much unless it's something we've experienced for ourselves directly. What is this mind? Padmasambhava again. Once you have calmed the compulsive thoughts in your mind right where they are and the mind is unmodified, isn't there emotionless stability? Oh, this is called quiescence, but it is not the nature of the mind. Now steadily observe the very nature of your own mind that is being still. Is there a resplendent emptiness that is nothing, that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance, shape or colour? That is called the empty essence. Isn't there a lustre of that emptiness that is unceasing, clear, immaculate, soothing and luminous, as it were? That is called its luminous nature. Its essential nature is the indivisibility of sheer emptiness, not established as anything, and in its unceasing, vivid luster, such awareness is resplendent and brilliant, so to speak. Such awareness is resplendent and brilliant. singing drips of rain the breath coming in and out one foot in front of another resplendent luminous As I said at the beginning, the last line of this sutra could be a bit of a, a sticking point for for us as part of the Mahayana. Is not born again into this world. This is referring to the pure-hearted one who has clarity of vision. And, and its literal meaning is even more... Um, uncompromising literally it's one does not lie again in the womb it's talking here about nibbana or arahantship but it's not so hard for us to really um, come to terms with this if we think of it in terms of the breaking of the cycle of birth and death no longer being caught up in, in aimless wandering through different states 
We're not born again into this world. Where are we born? Well, into Master Hakuin's pure land. Right here. Right now. I'll stop here and recite the fourth house.